Plenty to talk about in the show this week as a trade war heats up between B.C. and Alberta. The new Liberal leader goes to work and changes at ICBC to try and stem the bleeding. We'll talk about that and more with Global B.C.'s Keith Baldry, the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer, and making her debut on the show, CTV Vancouver's Victor Sudden. Later in the show, Attorney General David Eby will join us. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics for Kamloops Computer Center. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics on Radio NL. It is a overcast, wintry day here in Kamloops, I assume anything but in Victoria. Always a pleasure to be joined on the phone by Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and making her debut, Binder Sudgeon. Welcome all. Good morning. Uh, why don't we go, ladies, first on the first topic here, uh, this trade war of grapevines versus pipelines, which has been a bit of a news driver this week. Uh, John Horgan, the Premier, uh, making an effort to kind of take the high road in this thing. We're not going to retaliate. He did move a little off that 24 hours later yesterday uh, when he said we're looking at some options. But, Bender, uh, can, can the Premier, Rachel Notley, force John Horgan out of a quarter on this thing or, or no? Well, um, I think at some point he's got to do something. As critics will point out, he's the one who sort of started this whole mess. Um, so Rachel Notley right now is choosing something. I think the timing's pretty interesting, too. We've got a by-election coming up. We've got the throne speech. We've got the budget. Um, and she's choosing a topic, wine, that people like to talk about. It's getting a lot of attention. Uh, what they're hoping for now, what Rachel Notley is hoping for now, is for the federal government to really step in. And we know discussions are happening behind the scenes. There were discussions yesterday between the federal government and also uh, the provincial government here. Um, but John Horgan for now is saying no retaliation. But as you mentioned yesterday, he did say, well, we are looking to see if perhaps Alberta is violating one of our uh, trade agreements by with this action, this wine ban. And so we'll see how that goes as we look into that. And that may inform some future action. So I think for right now, it's a, a wait and see game to see if Rachel Notley will make good on her threat of possibly more actions. But at this point, I think he's got a little bit of time. All right, uh, Vaughn, uh, as we look at this thing, uh, I mean, the Premier, again, he's trying to take the high road here, but Rachel Notley has said she's going to come back uh, with more actions on this situation. I mean, at some point he's got to respond, you'd think, yeah? I, I think he would, yeah. Um, I don't know if that point is right now, um, just because of those discussions happening in, in the background. Um, but he has ruled out any type of economic retaliation. Um, I guess the point will be is how long does this drag on? And really, what role does the federal government take in this? If this continues to go on, if we start to see some escalating action from Alberta, then I think he'll have to do something. Whether that's back down or retaliate, uh, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, uh, we're, I think we're just getting whispered, Maria. We're having some phone issues. I, I don't know who's on right now. Uh, Keith, are you still there with us or no? Uh, Vaughn is still here. Good Vaughn. morning. All right. Hey, Vaughn's here. Okay, good. Uh, looks like we're going to try and get Keith back on. It doesn't sound like he's with us. So uh, I'll just talk to you, Vaughn, for a second to hear. Uh, so as far as John Horgan's position, I mean, as Binder's pointed out, he's in an interesting position. The by-election in Kelowna, uh, wine's not going to play well there. Budget pending up in a couple of weeks. Uh, so what, if any, options does he have on the table if he's going to do anything? Well, 
Well, I think the first thing that was apparent from the Premier's press conference this week is he's worried this thing is going to turn into a distraction, uh, you know, that we'll be writing about a trade war rather than all the wonderful things he's going to promise to do in the throne speech and the budget. That's his first concern. The second thing is he says he stands behind British Columbia's wine producers, but he didn't say what he's going to do about it in his first press conference. Then he came out and said, well, you know, we're going to actually start promoting BC wine elsewhere in the world. Uh, we got to replace our number two customer here, right? Alberta is the second biggest buyer of BC wine other than British Columbians. So uh, it's tough. Uh, I agree with you. Look, Rachel Notley timed this thing partly because she knew there was a by-election in, in Kelowna West. She said so at her press conference on Tuesday where she announced this. She said, I understand there's a by-election. Um, I don't know as though the Greens and the NDP were going to do all that well there anyway. You're closer to it than I am, but I can't imagine how this helps them in that vote. I see Andrew Wilkinson is in the Okanagan this morning at a winery uh, doing the his best to capitalize on this politically. All right. Uh, we're going to throw to a break a little early here so we can get everybody back on the phone line. It seems we've lost Keith. So I will take a quick break here in Radio NL and Inside Politics, and we'll rejoin this conversation on the other side. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. I think we got our phone issues sorted out. Uh, we're talking to Keith Paltry, Vaughn Palmer, and Binder Sudgeon. Uh, Keith, uh, we haven't heard from you yet. Uh, as far as this uh, wine versus oil situation goes, uh, Horgan versus Notley, uh, where do you think uh, where do you think the give is going to happen if there's any give at all? Well, it's unclear right now. BC actually hasn't done anything. I mean, they put out a news release saying they're going to craft a regulation, but the regulation actually hasn't been crafted yet. And, you know, George Heyman is out there saying he's going to consult with British Columbians on the issue of bitumen. But I suspect already we saw some signs yesterday from the federal government, from, from ministers like Catherine McKenna and... Uh, and others that uh, that at the end of the day, uh, Jim Carr, National Resources Minister, that Ottawa is reasserting its authority over the pipeline issue. It has jurisdiction over the pipeline. It, yesterday, again, they said it will be built. Uh, that may be enough eventually to placate Notley to at least uh, acknowledge that the feds have authority here and are backing her position rather than BC's. I think at the end of the day, what's got to happen is Kinder Morgan just has to start proceeding and building this thing and then challenge and dare bc to take it to court ultimately this is where this has to be decided is in court and i think bc is secretly happy with that position that uh, if it provides an out for horgan to allow this thing to be built over his objections where there's really nothing he can do about it because of a court case then i think that's something he he will find accessible just as a as site c People thought he was against Site C. He wasn't against Site C. He was about a process, and I think he's also about a process in terms of the Kinder Morgan pipeline, which is ultimately a process that will be determined in the courtroom rather than anywhere else. Uh, the question is, I guess, is which courtroom does it land in, Vaughn? I noticed uh, you brought up the Supreme Court of Canada in your column this week. Well, governments in this country, and particularly the federal government, do have the power to refer a question to the Supreme Court of Canada, but... Uh, Normally, you have to have a pretty clear question, and, I, and the feds are saying that, uh, Keith just pointed out, there's nothing to actually refer at the moment. There's no, uh, the, the B.C. government has, I guess, cleverly said we're going to regulate, but the regulations aren't out. They're going to put out the regulations, the proposed regulations, with options later this month, but 
those may not be translated into regulations that could be challenged in court for another year. So I think this is more about, one, scoring political points with Greens and environmentalists, and two, maybe driving up the price to get this thing built to such a point that the company just finally walks away and takes its $74.4 billion to some place in the world that is more welcoming of this kind of development. Bender, I'm curious what you think of Premier Rachel Notley's use of social media. She was tweeting uh, like every two minutes, it seemed, yesterday with uh, little excerpts from her inbox, of, all interestingly enough, of BC residents saying, hey, we support you, uh, we wish you well, that kind of thing. But she really seems to be using her Twitter account as a battering ram in this argument. Yeah, and I think she's reaching out sort of beyond the border in Alberta and making sure that her message is heard by British Columbians as well. And, you know, unloading her inbox with these messages of support from people. The first day, I think she was targeting or released messages of support from people from Vancouver Island. So that would hit pretty close to home for John Horgan and then spreading out throughout the rest of BC yesterday. And before she did all that, she launched her video in which she said, what BC is doing and her view is unconstitutional, even though, as it's been pointed out, BC is saying we haven't actually done anything yet. Um, and she is using that, I think, to also show Albertans that she is fighting, uh, that she's not backing down. And I think that's a message that she's trying to send on social media. And really, she has shown no sign of backing down as she continues to say there could be further action as well in the coming days. So, it's interesting to watch this play out on social media, but also she has gone to all the networks also to make sure that people are hearing exactly what she has to say. Yeah, she's definitely not being shy. Uh, Keith, uh, somebody who's popped up who has been fairly quiet recently is Ian Anderson, president of Kinder Morgan Canada. Uh, I assume, I mean, Ian's no shrinking violet either, but I assume uh, he was staying quiet not to kind of rock the boat under this new NDP government at British Columbia, but uh, he came up with a vengeance yesterday. What can we read into that? Well, yeah, and he's, you know, he's demanding a meeting with John Horgan, and Horgan's refused to meet with him uh, until all the court cases are resolved here. But uh, I've known Ian Anderson a long time, and, and you're right, he's no uh, shrinking violet. He's a pretty plain-speaking guy. Uh, he's been quietly making the rounds of Chamber of Commerces and uh, Boards of Trade and that type of thing. So he's been on a speaking tour for a while, but you're right, he's sort of kept his powder dry, I think, the last uh, the last few months as he waits to see how this NDP government starts to uh, uh, what shape it takes once it's actually in action. But uh, look for Ian Anderson to continue to be out there front and center on this project. He's not going to shy away. He's, he says again uh, yesterday, uh, he again repeated his assertion they're not going anywhere, that they're in this for the long haul. Now, I think he has to say that, but I think at some point, you know, you got to wonder if uh, Kinder Morgan and shareholders and bo- the board of directors are going to have some, some second thoughts and some impatience if this thing drags on um, interminably. But uh, I think Ottawa is showing signs it wants this thing done now. And I think the ball will eventually be in Kinder Morgan and Ian Anderson's court, start building this thing, and then see what happens. If there's protests, which inevitably will be, um, deal with them when they occur. But uh, and if someone takes them to court, get it out in, in court. There has to be some certainty over this. And right now, that's the big problem with this project. There's no certainty one way or another, whether it's going to live or die. It's, that will be decided in the courtroom, not on the newscasts. All right, Vaughn, uh, what do you think about this game of chicken if, if they decide to go that route, like he suggests? Well, uh, you know, I do think that building, starting building, although, you know, it's not our $7.4 billion that's being risked there. <laughs> yeah. 
you go ahead. I, I, you know, the interesting one to me is the B.C. government is playing political games by delaying this thing. They're not even going to have a regulation maybe for a year scoring political points, which is a political strategy, not necessarily a public policy strategy. I, you know, the one that gets me is this B.C. government is urgently wanting federal money for child care so the NDP can keep its promise to build two transit lines in Vancouver for housing. And I sort of wonder maybe the feds just don't process those applications for funding as quickly as they might. You know, not, of course, ever, Shane, linking specifically <laughs> what BC has done, but just saying, oh, I guess we lost your letter asking for the money on <laughs> child care. <laughs> we just send it again. Seriously, the province, British Columbia is playing politics with this. In my view, if the feds want to put some pressure on the province and say you're being a little too clever by half here, Ottawa can play some politics with some of those funding requests. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's squeeze in another topic before the bottom of the hour here. Uh, we were all down in Vancouver last weekend uh, watching a very entertaining BC Liberal leadership race. Andrew Wilkinson, of course, coming out on top of that in a bit of a thriller. Uh, he's been a week on the job now, and he's been doing a ton of media. Uh, Binder, what's your read on Andrew now that he's sort of got a few days under his belt? Well, I think it's uh, quite a departure from what we have seen from the Liberals, um, especially in the fall. Um, Andrew Wilkinson is saying, you call me anytime. I'm ready and available to answer questions. Um, he's got his caucus meeting in Kelowna there today, talking to the media about uh, the wine war. And as uh, Vaughn mentioned, out at um, in wine country for a photo op. So I think he is ready to go. I think he is eager and he's bringing some new energy to this opposition that we haven't seen for the last couple of months. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting. And this, you know, this battle over wine and pipelines has really, I think, given the Liberals something to hold on to as mm. we go into this session. So I think he's done a good job of getting out to in front of the media, talking about some of these issues, and perhaps deflecting away from some of those controversies that we saw in the late days of the leadership campaign, specifically around um, ICBC, around membership sign-ups. So um, even if he didn't get the play that he wanted this week in terms of the profiles and different things, I think he's got a lot to work with going into this next session. Yeah, Keith, how does, uh, how does a sort of a unified Liberal Party, assuming they are, uh, change the dynamic now with a new leader and, of course, the one big question mark being the Kelowna West by-election? But how does the dynamic shift now? Well, I, sort of, I agree with Binder that this is a, there's a new energy, I think, about to be brought to the, to the opposition benches. They've been in, literally in doldrums, uh, rudderless at sea since the election, since they lost power. And they've been waiting for a new leader to come in and make some changes. Already he's, he's appointed his staff. He's got a new team in place. Uh, you know, for no matter what you think of the Liberals' the record in government, their challenge now is to, is to carve out uh, a, a, an ability to be in an effective opposition. And I don't think they've been terribly effective up until now, but I think Wilkinson is going to show that he's got some energy, he's got some uh, aggression, he's got some focus that wasn't there before, and I think you're going to see a much more strategic focus from the Liberals as the session begins next week. Wilkinson's uh, got some points of view, he's got some positions, and he's very he's a good communicator. Uh, he's got to work on the retail side of politics. You know, by his own admission, he comes across sometimes it's too arrogant and elitist and that type of thing but I think you're going to see some energy and some focus that was 
lacking in the liberal side uh, for the last few months. Now that they've resolved their, their leadership question, it's uh, it's going to be a whole different ballgame. I've, I've used the analogy, we've been in the exhibition season since the election began. Now the regular season begins. This thing begins for real mm. next week. Uh, Vaughn, to you, uh, we all saw what played out in that last week. Uh, a lot of bitter uh, people behind the scenes with the Todd Stone membership situation. Uh, Diane Watts adding another component. Uh, what kind of bridge building does he have to do behind the scenes to get the party on the same page? Well, I think the best thing he could do would be, first of all, to give some prominence to Michael Lee, who ran one hell of a campaign, amazingly, for a newcomer uh, to come as close as he did. He could have been leader, you know. It was that close on that ballot where Wilkinson just eked ahead of him. Uh, I think they should make a serious effort to get Diane Watts into the legislature, a uh, fresh face, uh, a lot to offer there. Uh, I think he needs to look, obviously, in the long run at shuffling his critics and presenting a new face in the House. He said he said because the budget and the throne speech is, is so close starting next week that he's going to go into the session with the same critics as he inherited last fall. But when the spring break uh, rolls around in March, he'll probably do a shuffle. So, you know, he, he's the, the, the old, much more of an old guard guy than either Watts or Lee, who led on the first three ballots. So presenting a fresh face and something new for the Liberals is a challenge for Wilkinson. I think he's got a show that this session, as well as his ability to hold the government to account. Yeah. Bender, what's your thought on that? Uh, I mean, does he surround himself with the Michael Lees, possibly? I mean, Diane Watts, obviously not an MLA, so he doesn't have much options there, but does he surround himself with sort of the change group and sort of minimize sort of the old guard? What's his strategy going into this, this, next, this next session? Well, I think he's going to do um, a little bit of both. I think liberal membership is saying we like some of the things that the party's been doing, but also that it may be time for some fresh faces. So I think um, in order to drop some of the baggage from the last 16 years, he really does need to surround himself with some new faces and some new voices. So it would be good for him to do that. Um, but I think in terms of the messaging that you hear from uh, the liberals, it's probably going to be some of the same. In order to hold the NDP to account on its promises around affordability, uh, which the NDP will turn around and say, well, you guys didn't do much on it when you were in power, um, I think they need to get some new ideas in order and maybe some new faces to actually land some of those punches as they go into this next session. All right. We'll take a quick break to the bottom of the hour, get caught up on our news with Angela Iacobucci. And on the other side, we'll talk about ICBC with Binder Sedgen, Keith Baldry, and Vaughn Palmer on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. ICBC, a bit of a financial disaster. Dumpster fires, the Attorney General put it. We saw some moves this week uh, to try and stem the bleeding. So uh, first question to you, Keith. Uh, some caps on some minor injury claims, uh, some improvements on uh, some, some benefits. Uh, is it enough to kind of rein this disaster in or no? I don't think so. You know, it's very interesting that the cap on on minor injuries at fifty five hundred dollars uh, for settlement doesn't take effect until next April. So that's well more than a year from now. 
so other than some sort of cosmetic changes around the edges, uh, maybe some more red light cameras and, and such, uh, uh, doesn't seem to be any major steps taken between now and the next fiscal year, which means the losses at ICBC should be roughly the same as what they are this fiscal year, $1.3 billion, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. This is... Uh, this is a, a, a dumpster fire that shows no signs of going out. I note Rick McCandless, who's the former uh, associate uh, assistant deputy minister, who's been a forceful critic of ICBC and has intervener status at the Utilities Commission. His analysis is that even when this uh, this cap on small claims that takes on, on uh, minor issues takes effect, uh, it's not going to be enough to stem uh, to stem the losses. Far more drastic action is needed. It's clear, though, and AB, David Eby made this clear in his, in his presentation as did ICBC's uh, staff, that uh, litigation costs, legal fees at ICBC have skyrocketed as the number of accidents go up every year. 20,000 uh, every year is the number of accidents, the increase in accidents. So too do, do the legal costs and all the lawyers. And that's why you see this big campaign by lawyers right now on radio to beat back uh, ICBC because they have the most to lose. But I think ICBC and David EBC David Eby are both determined to ensure that those lawyers lose because that's where a lot of the costs are going. Uh, Bender, one thing that David Eby did dance around was repeated questions about where rates are going. I mean, he's, he's touting sort of the line that, oh, we're, we're serving this to make rates affordable, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but he wouldn't specifically answer the question about whether rates are going up or not. What did you think of that? Well, I thought that was interesting, and to sort of build on the fire reference, um, David Eby came out a couple of weeks ago with his hair on fire saying that drivers were going to face massive increases if we didn't do uh, something about ICBCs, $400 more a year, and I think that put a lot of people, um, took notice of what's happening with ICBC. Of course, David Eby's been trying to say, this is all the Liberals' fault, though. We're going to try and make it better. But remember, this is the Liberals' fault, but you could face um, some of these massive insurance increases. So he's got that message out there. He's starting to announce some of these changes, and yet he's not saying yet what the impact will be on drivers' insurance rates. So I, I don't know how that's going to play out for people. I think they're less interested in who's to blame because they see it as a political blame game. And people are just want to know, what's going to happen to my insurance? Do I need to make different plans? Can I continue to drive? So I think at some point he's got to come out and answer that question. Uh, when exactly that is, I'm not sure. We are hearing that there will be more changes coming, uh, but we don't have a specific timeline for that yet. Yeah, well, he is on the show, so I'll be asking. Maybe he'll do it now. <laughs> uh, Vaughn, uh, to you, can they get this no-fault light thing through or no? Yes, I do think they'll get that through. I think because of the, the one area where the financial crisis at ICPC is working for the government this time, I think it's a recognition that uh, there's, something's got to be done and that it's the fault of the previous government. The other thing they've done, which I think is wise, is they've got the advocates for the disabled, the occupational therapists, the medical people, supporting them this time. When they tried to do full-blown no-fault no in the 90s, uh, they had a lot of opposition from those groups. This time, by increasing the benefits, they've got support for it. On rates, uh, you know, I agree with Binder, they've got to do something there, and the minister ducked it, but what I think they're going to do is you're going to see higher rates for bad drivers, lower rates for good drivers. People that have a really good driving record may actually be offered a, a cheaper insurance product, perhaps with a higher deductible, but if you have a good driving record, you won't worry about that, and much higher rates and punitive rates 
for people with bad driving records and risky practices. So that may net out at not higher rates. They'd be able to frame it as we're not raising rates, we're just changing the structure of rates. But they have to do something on that to effectively make the people that are driving up the accident rate pay more for their insurance. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the things I think Rob mentioned it on a past show, but I think where they hang their hat there is how they define a bad driver. And there's a line there where they can be seen as just doing cash grabs, uh, for example. Keith? Yeah, no, I have to be very careful. I think people are going to be very sensitive to any um, changing of the rate structure. Uh, ICBC has long been a political football for various governments, various parties in power. Um, and it can burn a government very, very easily. So I think the NDP has to be very careful here of just how far they go in churning the rate structure. But um, I'm not convinced, well, maybe I am convinced, there, maybe there are enough bad drivers in B.C. to penalize them um, to actually make a financial difference for ICBC. Certainly every day on the road you see some pretty bad driving habits out there. Mm. Um, but it's, it's a, an unanswered question whether or not there are enough bad drivers to jack up the rates to make a, a big dent in uh, ICBC's uh, bottom line. But I think the takeaway I got from Evie, because he's not implementing this ban- this uh, limit on, on minor uh, injuries for another year, I think ICBC's financial woes are going to continue for some time. There's no easy end in sight here. And that eventually has to have a profound impact on our insurance rates. So they're going to go up one way or another. I mean, he wants to hold, he, he said in the news conference, he'd like to hold the rate of increase to the rate of inflation. But I don't see that how that's a short-term prospect. I think that's very much a long-term uh, play. All right, to squeeze one more topic in here, we saw an announcement on marijuana, which continues to be sort of a fascinating file as we charge towards legalization. Uh, the government is doing a private and government-run retail model, uh, and so a couple of things that pop out at me there. One is the cost of setting up a uh, distribution and standalone store network. Uh, the other is, uh, now that we have the retail frame, is uh, whether three months or four months, whenever legalization happens in the summer, uh, is that enough time to tackle all these regulatory licensing, permitting, all of that stuff in order to get these things up and running. Binder, why don't we start with you? There's a lot going on here. There is a lot going on, and it sounds like there's still a lot more being worked on. Uh, A lot of details are still um, being talked about. Uh, One of the things that Mike Barnworth talked about is in terms of landlords who don't want renters to grow or um, use marijuana cannabis in in their homes. What rights do they have? Um, But on the retail side, all of these different pieces have to come together. And Barnworth is already saying, listen, the date of legalization, it's not going to happen in July that we're going to have all these stores up and running and things will change overnight, that it's going to be a process perhaps by late summer. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of regulations to, to get through. So I think for me, it's still pretty unclear exactly how this will roll out. Plus, the other layer to this is that local and municipal governments will have quite a bit of say in where some of these uh, retailers will be located. So um, it'll be interesting to see, I think, how all of this plays out and to see all the unanswered questions perhaps getting answered over the next couple of weeks or just leaving question marks there about what exactly we're going to see yeah, in the no, summer. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Vaughn, to you, uh, this marijuana issue to me seems like a bit of a whack-a-mole. You hit one problem on the head and nine more pop up. 
very, very complicated, and I see that the word out of Ottawa now is the feds are finally realizing that, well, you know, they're in charge of production and distribution, and uh, there may not be that much dope in the pipeline uh, by summer. It may be fall. Uh, look, I, I think the national government rushed us into this. I think the provincial governments across the country would be quite happy at a two- or three-month grace period before we're fully up and running. Uh, there are still an awful lot of unanswered questions on a very complicated file. Keith, last word to you. I think this is the most uh, complex public policy initiative in decades. Uh, I've had lots of talks with Mike Farnworth, who's just holding his head in his hands as he is, gets almost daily briefings on how far and wide this cannabis legalization reaches into all corners of society. There are at least 18 bills that have to come into the legislature that amend existing legislation to accommodate legalization of cannabis, everything from you know the implications of driving motor vehicles, tenants' rights, landlords' rights, as Binder mentioned. This is a, an incredibly complex file. It's not just about whether or not you sell it in liquor stores or not. It's, uh, it goes far deeper than that. Uh, and I'm not surprised they're not selling liquor stores. Dr. Perry Kendall, the chief medical health officer, made a very compelling case about why it should not be sold there, and I think Farnworth agreed with that. But as uh, Farnworth will tell you, at a moment's notice, uh, this is not just about where you sell it. It's about everything. And it's uh, it's going to be reaching all corners of society very deeply, and it's got uh, a lot of complexities to it that uh, have yet to be answered at any level. Yeah, it's going to be interesting watching this thing roll out. Uh, Binder, Keith Vaughn, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. There we go. Binder Sudgeon, Keith Baldry, and Vaughn Palmer. Always a pleasure to hear from them. Look forward to having Binder back on in future shows as well. Uh, we'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. On the other side, Attorney General David Eby joins us. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Wintry morning here in Kamloops. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by BC's Attorney General, David Eby. Dave, how are you? Good, Shane. How are you? I am well. You're in town today. What's going on? What are you doing in Kamloops? Uh, a couple things. I'm speaking at the law school, and uh, there's a new uh, Supreme Court judge being appointed, Len Marchand, so I'm going to his welcoming ceremony as well. Excellent. Well, welcome to town. Um, first off, uh, ICBC, I mean, one of many huge files you're juggling over there. You're one of the busiest people in cabinet. Uh, you're trying to put out this dumpster, dumpster fire, as you put it. You made some big changes this week, but we all know that some of the major moves won't happen until next April. So uh, bare bones on this thing. I know you're saying you want to keep rates affordable. Uh, are rates going to go up this year and next for BC drivers or not? Um, I, I suspect that there will be... Uh, uh some rate increases for drivers as we uh, get things under control. Uh, my goal is to, to keep rate increases to uh, uh, either uh, inflationary or near inflationary uh, because uh, BC already has very high insurance rates. The goals of the reforms that I announced uh, this past uh, week, uh, the goal of them is to get ICBC's finances under control so it can deliver affordable insurance to British Columbians. And I, I think it will achieve those goals. But as you know, it will take a little bit of time to get there. How do you define affordable, Dave? I mean, as you mentioned, we're paying some high rates now. Do you define affordable as in we're going to pay less than we currently do at some point or, or, or no? Well, there's there's uh, the issue of affordability is one where we look at a couple things. One is we look at um, how we compare uh, in, interjurisdictionally between other provinces across Canada. We look at someone with a similar driving background in uh, different provinces and how much they're paying. 
And so there are two parts to it. One is the fact that our uh, costs are out of control, both on the auto body side, which are up 30% over the last couple of years, and on the legal side, where minor injury claims costs, pain and suffering awards are up 230% since the year 2000. So we've got to deal with those costs. But also, uh, there's an issue in, in BC where we haven't dealt with what's called the rating scale in about 25 years. That's where uh, someone's insurance rates are set based on their driving history. And uh, so we're going to be initiating a consultation with the public about reforms to that to ensure that good drivers that have these long driving histories with no tickets and no accidents, that they're paying less. And drivers that are driving the costs in our insurance uh, world by having collisions, by uh, driving recklessly, distracted driving, and so on, uh, pay significantly more. And so uh, we're rebalancing that because in other provinces, uh, I've had many, many letters to my office, people who move to BC and say, I'm a good driver, I haven't had accidents, and as soon as I moved to BC, I started paying way more than I did elsewhere. And that's because we don't have this uh, good scale to identify who the good drivers are and who the drivers are that are driving the costs and make them pay more because they're actually costing everybody more. So then would good drivers, Dave, someone with an excellent driving record, could they potentially pay less than they do now or, or no? Exactly. Yeah? Exactly. That uh, The goal is that good drivers would be paying less than they're paying now and, uh, and bad drivers would be paying more uh, in order to reflect the additional costs that they're adding to the system. All right. Uh, these moves this week probably won't in and of themselves put out this dumpster fire. You already mentioned that more stuff's coming down the pipe. Uh, any details on what's going to come at us next? Yes, uh, we have some uh, reforms that are going to be coming in relation to auto body repair costs to ensure that those costs are uh, staying in line with uh, reasonable year-over-year increases. And, uh, and we also have uh, the Ernst & Young, or pardon me, the PWC uh, report uh, into ICBC, a third-party business firm that came in and did a review of past reviews as well as ICBC's practices to identify savings uh, that we'll be releasing shortly. Um, and, and that has identified some areas of savings as well, mostly administrative processes inside ICBC that will deliver savings. And then there are technical things, something called subrogation, for example, which is where uh, you're, if you had personal disability insurance and you were injured in an accident, that insurance would pay first and ICBC would pay second. That's a standard uh, uh, process in other provinces with public insurers. Uh, it's not standard in BC. That'll be a savings of uh, of near $100 million. So that's, it's bits and pieces here and there, Shane, to get this billion-dollar monster under control. <laughs> I like the mere $100 million. Uh, Dave, I've I have people telling me that uh, one of the things on the table, potentially, uh, is immediate roadside prohibitions for distracted drivers. True or no? Well, one of the things that we've done, Shane, is, uh, is significantly increased uh, the premiums that people who have multiple distracted driving uh, infractions are uh, receiving two or more tickets for distracted driving. Uh, they're going to pay $2,000 more it's, uh, uh, in their insurance. a very significant additional penalty for people because we know that distracted driving is, uh, is increasing the number of accidents significantly in BC, increasing the number of fatalities. In BC, people just need to not use their phone when they're driving. There are some people who are not getting that message, and so uh, they need to be paying and in line with uh, the way that they're driving costs. If people don't understand, uh, based on paying $2,000 more in insurance, then we may have to look at other mechanisms, and really everything's on the table. We uh, Distracted driving, I'm told, uh, has now passed uh, driving under the influence of alcohol. Uh, for the number of injuries and accidents uh, that are caused by this kind of activity. And so we really need that cultural shift and whatever it's going to take to get us there, uh, we really do need to get there. All right. So essentially, just to cut through all that, you that is a possibility that we could have immediate roadside prohibitions there, even maybe. 
Absolutely. We're, we're escalating uh, the penalties and consequences of distracted driving to try to get the message through to this hardcore group that just will not put their phones down. Uh, because uh, the same thing happened with seatbelts and with uh, drinking and driving. Uh, we need a cultural shift in whatever it's going to take to get there. All right. Uh, the other big file that you have is this money laundering thing. Sam Cooper there has done amazing work, uh, and he's revealed in his latest article that uh, in the middle of this whole laundry, money laundering crisis, there's a $7.3 million anti-money laundering software at BCLC, which was supposed to help pinpoint some of these problems. Uh, but according to his article, that, uh, that software is, quote, barely functioning. What's going on there, Dave? Um, I, uh, I've asked for German to uh, investigate and review uh, processes at the Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch and BC Lottery Corporation around anti-money laundering controls. Uh, I've specifically asked Mr. German now to have a look at this software system to advise me on where it's at um, and to provide recommendations about what we should be doing about that. Um, I do want to take a second because BCLC is located in Kamloops and recognize that there are a bunch of really uh, hardworking people in BCLC uh, that have been working on this file for a while that were raising red flags with the previous government that this needed to be dealt with. Um, and so I hope that uh, people in Kamloops understand that, uh, that uh, the issues that we face um, for the hardworking people at BCLC, uh, it's not a consequence of uh, some of the things that they've done, is the previous government did not prioritize this as an issue, and uh, we're prioritizing it now, and I'm working hard with BCLC to get things under control. Why would the, why would the previous government not prioritize it? This is just, the, the, the madness here is just out of, out of control. Well, the issue is, Shane, that, uh, that cracking down on money laundering has uh, financial consequences in terms of gaming revenue. The people who were bringing in the duffel bags of cash were actually gambling with it. And, um, and they were, uh, this might be breaking news for people, uh, the house always wins. So they were losing money when they brought these duffel bags of cash in, and that money was going into public programs. And because BC uh, uh, Gaming uh, was located in the Ministry of Finance, uh, I'm concerned that the priority was placed on revenue generation ahead of cracking down on uh, this kind of activity that was happening in the casinos. There will be a financial consequence to our crackdown. Um, I'm told it's on the order of 40 to $60 million, perhaps, that may be uh, uh, reduced uh, revenue to the province because of our crackdown on this kind of activity that was engaged in by these high-stakes gamblers uh, at, uh, at card tables at BC casinos. And so, uh, you know, if you, if you, it's $40, $60 million that could be used in public programs, but we're also paying out a huge amount of money because we're taking in the proceeds of crime. Uh, and uh, when we pay for things like fentanyl overdoses, additional policing, when there's gang activity in the interior and the lower mainland, uh, these things are all related to that kind of activity, and we need to make it more difficult for these gangsters, not easier. All right. Uh, we're almost out of time. I want to sneak this one in here. This trade war between B.C. and Alberta, has the Attorney General, uh, are legal options being considered, and should this thing land in the Supreme Court of Canada, Dave? Well, the Premier's been pretty clear. You know, our focus is uh, affordability, making life better for British Columbians. We will protect B.C. business, uh, and we do have tools to do that under trade agreements uh, with Alberta. Our hope is that, and certainly my hope is that, uh, everybody can uh, take take one step back and uh, and have a look at this carefully. There are major economic consequences for British Columbia and Alberta here, and uh, and we just need to make sure that we're making uh, 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 careful decisions around such a serious issue as uh, as trade with Alberta. But you are looking at your options right now. Oh, absolutely. We're looking at all options to protect BC business as we need to, uh, and uh, and we're prepared to take steps as we need to. Our hope is though uh, that we find a better resolution with Alberta and with the federal government uh, than some sort of trade war. All right. Uh, David, always a pleasure. Thank you for making the time. Appreciate it, and welcome to town. Thanks, Shane. There we go. Attorney General David Eby, he's in town at a TRU Law Conference. 
I'll be sending a reporter out there a little later. But uh, that's it for Inside Politics today. My thanks to Bender Sudgeon, Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and David Eby. We'll see you here on Inside Politics on Radio NL next week. Local. First. CHNL. AM 610 in Kamloops. RadioNL.com. The Valley's first choice for local news.